Thanks, Tom. Um, we'll pray in just a second. I'd just like to begin, though, by thanking Ian for his very warm words of welcome at the beginning. I don't think I've ever uh, been introduced as a speaker with the words, I don't know why we bothered getting a speaker. <laughs> if that's how you feel at the end, please wait till I've left. <laughs> it's really good to be with you all. Um, I feel like, although I'm never here, this feels like my, my gospel partnership. Uh, I, I know a number of you. Um, this is where I belong. Um, I pray for you um, and very grateful for the, the unity around the Lord Jesus that is evidenced in this room. So it's, it's a delight to be here. Uh, let me pray and then we'll begin. Father, we're so grateful for unity in the gospel with our different uh, church backgrounds and denominational affiliations, our, our different convictions on certain doctrines and practices and yet our shared faith in the evangelical gospel, um, our shared faith in the Lord Jesus as uh, our, our King and Lord and God and Saviour. We're so grateful for the scriptures which speak to us clearly and truthfully, but because they're your scriptures, speak to us what is good and wholesome and lovely as well. Uh, and so we pray that you would convince us of the beauty of what your word teaches and the beauty of how you have made us. That you'd clarify our understanding of where we are culturally um, and of what reality really is. But more than just clarifying understanding, we pray that you'd give us a love for your truth and a love for the way you've made us to be so that we would desire to live in accordance with how you've made us and what you've redeemed us for. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I realise it's called telling a better story about human sexuality, but I'm not really telling a story. That dawned on me as I was sitting there then. And this is going to be more analysis than storytelling. So in some ways what we're doing about, we're thinking about who are the dramatis personae in the story? Who are the characters in the story? And particularly who are the human characters? We're going to get on to what reality is, we're not going to spend lots of time in the Bible. Um, the reason for that is simply, I think I could regurgitate a lot of things you already know. And what I want to do is just do some reflection that is absolutely drawn from and shaped by Scripture, but hopefully filling in a few gaps uh, so that this sheds more light on Scripture. We will dip into a few Bible verses, but I I just want to sort of flag now, this is not going to be in-depth exegetical biblical theological study. That's all in the background, and I hope you will recognise how what I say fits in with that. Now, I, I've no idea what the timings are for this, by the way, Tom. Um, what, what, what's the plan? Let me check. Tom doesn't know either. You've got 40 minutes, then some questions. 40 minutes, then some questions. Then we'll have coffee. And then, then what happens after that? Uh, then you've got another 40 minutes. Okay, so a few. <laughs> I, I have 40 minutes, we're in big trouble because we're going really fast. Okay, 40 minutes, right. Um, but let's, let's just do the nasty bit first. Okay? Because this is really nasty, but we swim in sewage. And we've become acclimatised to swimming in sewage. 
And that's, that's like 95% of our problem here. We, we swim in sewage because we're sons and daughters of Adam, <laughs> primarily. But then that has taken particular cultural forms that are just grotesque and distressing and destructive when you step back to look at them rather than just it being the air you breathe to mix metaphors. So the carnage of the sexual revolution. And I think actually, this is where I just want to say, get on the front foot, be confident, because almost anything would be better than this. I mean, seriously, we, if, if we're embarrassed and ashamed and, and a bit anxious about how Christian sexual ethics is perceived, just think about what the alternative is. And just relax. Because, I mean, just anything would be better. I think Muslim sexual ethics would be better than this. <laughs> So Louise Perry's, I mean, brilliant, awful, brilliant book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. It's a very distressing read. She's an atheist, she's a feminist, and she's launching a feminist case against the sexual revolution. She makes this the great line, the sexual revolution is something that suits the Hugh Hefners of this world and not the Marilyn Monroes. And so I'm not going to go through in any detail because it's too awful, but... <coughs> You know, we live in a world, and anyone under the age of 40 lives in the world, and particularly under the age of 25 lives in the world, that is so damaging to men and women, but I think particularly to women. Sexual assault and rape, just horrifying statistics. And, you know, she makes the point that young women have been shaped to think that it's okay to, to drink and get high in the company of young men who are bigger than them and stronger than them and have been shaped by pornography to like violent sex and painful sex. So the damage this does, the, damage, the psychological and emotional damage that casual sex does to women particularly. Now I think it damages men too, but actually men are much more biologically wired to, to want to desire and to sort of carry on with promiscuous sexual relationships um, in a way that is just immensely destructive to women and yet they're expected to be like men. I mean this is the great this is the great thing where like how can these poor naive women they, they've been told this lie that they should be like men so that men get their own way and, and this is supposed to be liberating rather than an escape from patriarchy, <coughs> which may not be perfect, but does at least protect women from a lot of harm in this respect. <laughs> Sexually, people are product. I mean, in every way, actually, these days, we're products, aren't we? That's how social media works. Um, that's how Google works. You are, you are Apple's product or whoever's product. But sexually, people are products as well. Uh, your sexuality, your sexual desires are used to manipulate you to buy all kinds of things. Um, sexuality is, is used and manipulated by Sainsbury's to make you think they're a wonderful company with all their rainbow flags uh, during Pride Month. And so, of course, you want to shop there, don't you, if you're not a Christian? Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't shop in Sainsbury's. But... but also, just people are used as sexual products. Prostitution is sex work. It's a dignifying and ennobling thing, apparently, for women. Um, and pornography is just based on the devouring of producers and consumers 
for the profits of a few companies and a few individuals. Pornography is fueled by sex trafficking, underage girls, incredible rates of drug abuse for female performers, recreational drugs, hard drugs, just so that they can psychologically cope with what they have to do. Um, uh, an epidemic of young male impotence uh, linked to pornography use. I mean, no longer men in their 50s and 60s and 70s, but men in their teens and 20s. Um, the use of pornography linked to massively reduced ability to build relationships, to empathise, because you're, you're objecting, objectifying people and treating them like meat. And so what do you do when you meet real people? Even if it's not a sexual exchange, your ability just to, to establish healthy relationships and emotional bonds and trust and empathy massively reduced. And, and ever-decreasing... I mean, returns is an ugly word for it, but... The, the initial thrill of the young teenage boy who sees his... Well, young teenage boy, whatever it is, young 10, 11-year-old boy who sees his first sexualised image. And it's incredibly exciting and arousing. And over time, through use, um, more and more things, just, they just lose their impact. And so although it's a world built for the Hugh Hefners of the world, if you know the end of Hugh Hefner's life... I'm not going to talk about it because it's, it would be shameful to talk about it, but it's, I mean, an utterly degrading and pathetic end to his life. So ever-decreasing returns and ever-more degraded desires. Slavery to lusts. Um, I, I'm just struck by, did you, did you see Eliud Kipchoge has sort of smashed his marathon world record again? Extraordinary run um, in Berlin, took another ha a half a minute off his record, was five minutes ahead of his nearest competitor. This is the guy who was in London in 2019, had to pull out, just something had gone wrong and it looked at the end of his career and now he's dominating the world again. And he ran a marathon in two hours, one minute and nine seconds. And this is based on obvious, incredible natural ability, but it's actually based on discipline and a team. So the two things he attributes it to are the team, there is, there is no individual, there's only the team, and it's the team's victory. But, incredible self-discipline. And so, you know, he's in danger of becoming the sort of, like, uh, fortune cookie wisdom guy, but only the disciplined in life are free. It's a very counterintuitive claim until you hear the second bit. If you are undisciplined... You are a slave to your moods and passions. So if you're a disciplined person, you are free to get up at 5 o'clock every morning and go for your 15-mile training run. If you're enslaved to your passions and you're Matthew Mason, you're just going to be in bed. And that's what, you know, I certainly wasn't going out for a training run at 5 o'clock this morning. But if you are under... You know this, don't you? You know this. To the degree that you are undisciplined in life, and I think that's all of us to some degree... You are a slave to your moods and passions. Only the disciplined in life are free. And sexual self-discipline has been utterly dissolved in the acids of the sexual revolution. And so we live in a world of slaves. And pornography depends on people who are slaves to their lusts 
and so enslaved to pornography. And those of you who are in student churches, particularly, or those of you who are working with teenagers, but particularly I think students away from home and this kind of thing, you, you are now ministering to people who are in slavery to their lusts and passions and therefore dangerous to themselves and one another. Uh, we, we live in a world of broken marriages and families. And just the damage that does to children. And the damage it does to children in stable marriages and families. Um, having to reassure my infant school-aged son that, you know, by the grace of God, he wasn't going to be shuttling between homes in future years. Why, why do you have to have that conversation? Because now it is normal in the experience of all children that this is, this is how families work. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, alarming, alarming interaction with a little girl. Um, a young girl. I mean, five, six, seven in the playground when I was with my son over the summer. Um, and she was all over me for attention. And then as soon as I said, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, we, we, we played her, her and my son and we played on the roundabouts and things like that. And as soon as I said, I'm really sorry, we're going to have to go now. They was like, okay, and off she went, as if nothing had happened. Because, I mean, she just hasn't had the experience of learning what health and stability in a parental relationship is like. Abortion. Because abortion is birth control. You know, the, abor- the abortion which was introduced in 1967 for extreme cases uh, relating to the mother's health, um, which now is used to enable women. You know, so by the time in America, after the, 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 the legal decision over the summer, and you have companies like Amazon and Google saying, we'll pay for you to go and get your abortion, people as products. And abortion is birth control. In order to produce more consumers and workers for a, a capitalist economy. I'm not, I don't want to go into economic stuff because I'm not competent. But I mean, that's, that's part of what's fueling it. But the, we, we shouldn't underestimate what the availability of allegedly reliable, freely available contraception has done. It's put, peop, it's put women in control of reproduction. No, it hasn't. That's a lie. And so the statistics. Uh, 209,817 babies killed in the womb in England and Wales, let alone Scotland and Ireland in 2020. Well, 2020 would have been uh, pre-legalisation in Northern Ireland, but now 10 million in the UK since 1967. We just passed that number, 10 million. 18.2 per thousand women that for in one year. And I think statistically, it's rough, roughly the statistics are something like one in three women is likely to have had an abortion. And the statistics in our churches are not going to be all that different. And we need to find ways of speaking about this that don't shame women who've had abortions 
that don't cause a false sort of being crushed by guilt, that enable us to look at sin and say it's cleansed by the blood of Christ and there's life after it and it's not the unforgivable sin and yet. World Health Organization statistics, this blew me away. Last year or the year before, causes of death in the world. 73 million induced abortions per annum globally. 55.4 million deaths of any cause. You can do the maths. So here's the story. We, We live in the world of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. You remember Fantasia and Mickey Mouse. And the sorcerer goes off, and, and Mickey decides, I can, I can get the mop <laughs> to, 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 to do the work for me. This is great. I've got these powers, and I can use them to my advantage. And immediately creates something that's out of his control, and he gets the uh, hatchet out, and he starts chopping the mop up. And before you know it, you have this army of mops uh, and buckets, and, and the place is flooding. And the water's sort of rising and rising and rising, and it's chaos. We have... We have let loose, I mean I say this literally, I I think I mean this literally, we have let loose demons on our society. And it is out of control and we are utterly impotent to stop it. No pun intended. Carnage. I'm just like, anything, anything would be better. If you're pro-woman, if you're pro-girls, if you care about the dignity of women, you should be sexually conservative. Louise Perry says, Louise Perry, the atheist feminist, says, we have a technology to deal with this. So we've we've let loose this sort of technological revolution. Um, and social and cultural and sexual revolution. We have a technology to deal with it. It's a pretty clumsy, clunky technology, and it's quite hard to use. It's called marriage. So her advice to young women is, wait months, not hours or days, to sleep with a man, and only do so if you can imagine wanting to have children with him and get married. It's interesting, isn't it? Another way of putting it is we live in a ruined city. I love the, um, the, 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 the word for the fall that the theologian Paul Griffiths uses is the devastation. I just think it's a very vivid way of talking about the fall. Because a fall, although the fall is supposed to indicate we tried to ascend to, to God and have fallen down, a fall can be just like I'm, stu- I'm trying to get a cookie and I stumble and I can pick myself up and get a cookie. The fall is not a little trip. The fall is the devastation. It is ruin. We live in a ruined human nature, in a ruined world. We live in a bombed out city. It is like culturally and sexually and relationally in this country right now with all our riches and our wealth and everything put together. We're living in the middle of Kiev. In the rubble. Unrecognisable. And and because we live in the rubble, I mean, imagine, he's got out of the car again and just went, isn't Bath has got to be one of the top 
I don't know where you would put it, top five loveliest places in the country. That the harmony and the integrity and the beauty of the architecture and the city planning, town planning, um, just stunning. Imagine bombs raining down for days on end and then going out and looking down on the city and trying to imagine what it must have been like. And walking through the rubble and walking down a street you know and finding, oh, that's a dead end, it's blocked off. It's just covered in rubble and bodies. Okay, how do I, how do I navigate my way across the city? I don't, I don't know it anymore. I have this map of it in my head and I've got this map on my phone and it's useless. And that's where we are. So it's almost impossible to understand and love what I'm calling, I mean, it's pathetic that I have to do this, but the real reality <laughs> of human sexuality. Not just, I, so Francis Schaeffer used to talk about true truth, as if there can be any other kind of truth, but that's where we are. We have to talk about true truth, and I just think we have to talk about real reality. Here's Oliver O'Donovan, uh, Anglican ethicist, writing in uh, 1984. Um, and I, I, still, I still read this and go, it's uncanny that a man write, is writing in 1984, not 2022. Okay. And I don't want to get into transgender stuff today, but this is just the illustration that he's using. Once we think of it as possible to choose to belong to the opposite sex... Once our, our sexual determination has become a matter of self-making, then of course even the vast majority who live more or less comfortably in the sex of their birth may be thought of as having chosen to do so. It's the standard temptation of a technological culture to conceive even the natural as a special case of artifice. To argue for letting nature take its course simply as the best of all instrumental means to some humanly chosen end. This isn't just how we were made and how we therefore flourish. This is just our choice about the best way for me or for my society or for my family or my children to achieve this end that I decide is good. And in the end that would be my criticism of Louise Perry. Is that she's chosen the end... It happens to be a pretty good one, and she's mapping the best way there. So we do need more. We do. I think we need to learn from Louise Perry and, and people like her who have just been incredibly clear-sighted and brave. But we need to go further. Um, if if marriage is redefined so that it is no longer defined as being the union of a man and a woman for life for the procreation and nurture of children. Which is what marriage is, but is no longer legally in this country. Then if you then you're just choosing. That's that's how that's your choice of how you will organize your life. I will marry someone of the opposite sex, we will have children. It's just a choice. That's I think is the challenge. We need to we need to become Equipped again, and I, I honestly think we have to get better as evangelical Christians at remembering what reality is 
and paying attention to how we've been made and what we've been made for because I think we've lost the plot. So the marriage thing, you know, I've read a number of evangelical books on marriage that just don't mention children. And I'm like, That's, you're not talking about marriage at that point. Sorry, you're not. Which is not to say if you are married and you don't have children, I'm not saying you're not married. Of course you're married. But, but, but procreation and nurture of children is part of the definition of marriage as an institution, as given by God. And I just think, I think, in all kinds of ways, we, we, we've lost these things. I think for those under the age of, say, 25, it's going to be increasingly common to find men and women and teenagers um, uh, professing an orthodox evangelical faith in the gospel, the authority of scripture, and wanting to affirm same-sex relationships. Because we've lost contact with reality and we don't have reasons to say anymore and you know what happens what happens is we we end up with a few controversial proof texts and two or three in this case always bad but persuasively written books if you don't know the arguments arguing that Romans 1 doesn't mean that the proof texting approach is not going to work okay we will we will we will win the exegetical arguments, objectively speaking, and lose the battle in the war. Niels Hemmingsen, <coughs> I do a reading group, and we're reading this Danish Lutheran theologian who, who talks about the, the need to recognise, want, choose, and do what is right and good. And all four of those stages are important. And we can't so focus our attention on the choose and do if we haven't got the foundation in the recognise and want. Okay, and what, what I'm doing in the rest of this time is recognition. Can we just recognise some true things about reality? The battle, of course, for all of us is, the, is in the want because our, our desires are so corrupted and sinful that we, e- even, though, even as regenerate believers, there's this internal war going on all the time with sin. Indwelling sin remains powerful and so we're slowly learning to love what by nature of sinners we hate. And that clouds our understanding. It makes it harder to recognise It means we have to work harder to recognise. We are the people in the swimming pool with the pile of floats trying to push them under the waters and pretend they're not there. Now eventually, as in all the stuff I just described, it's going to rise up and hit someone in the face. And it's psychologically hard work, but we're quite invested in doing it, even as regenerate believers, to say nothing of the unregenerate who don't have the Spirit of God at work illuminating their understanding and reshaping their desires to love God and love their neighbours. All right, well, that's cheerful, isn't it? So here's the challenge. How do we recover in our imaginations the sense of the loveliness of the innocence, security and wonder of the end of Genesis 2? Let me just read the end of Genesis 2. It is so... I remember the first time this hit me when, when I went past my Read the Bible in a Year programme 
where you read Genesis 1 on day 1, Genesis 2 on day 2, Genesis 3 on day 3, and instead I just sat down and read through Genesis. And crossing that boundary, that barrier between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 was a visceral shock. Think about everything I've just been saying about sexual chaos and destruction. And listen to this. Then, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. At last! Someone like me. She shall be called woman, someone different from me, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. How do we recover that sense of just the beauty? If you've spent your teenage years and your early adulthood looking at picture after picture and, and video after video of naked and apparently unashamed but deep down deeply ashamed and degraded people, how do you recover a sense of this is so good? How do you actually get naked with someone who is your spouse and not feel horrified as your sexual past rises up to face you? But it's not only that. I mean, it's just a, any, any of us who've watched any television, <laughs> I mean, any of us who've seen any adverts to some degree or another. And then how do we recover a sense of the tragedy of Genesis 3, 7 to 8? Oh, I don't mean 7 to... Oh, no, that's Genesis 2. I, I do mean 7 to 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. God says, where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you? And the man said that it was the woman. It was her. Well, we live in a Genesis 3 world on steroids. And how do we recover? Well, we can't, we can't go back pre-fall, can we? No, we will never be back in Genesis 2. And yet we have to recover a sense of this is the God-ordained pattern for how uh, human sexuality and human sexual relationships should be. Uh, and we have to have a growing sensitivity to the, the ugliness and the horror and the evil in its destructiveness, but also in the offence against the God who made us. That we would treat him like that, that we would treat others like that, that we would treat ourselves like that. You know. So... Uh, I reckon I've got a couple more minutes before we do questions. I want to talk about components of a better story, really. So that not, not the story itself so much as components, just aspects. And I just think, this is what I used to say when I was a minister to the congregation. On a somewhat regular basis, there is such a thing as reality. And it's really real. Take heart. Because actually, you know, this is not a lost cause. 
This is, we are not at the end of an inevitable cultural process. This has been a series of contingent things that have led to this and that have escalated. This is not how life has to be. This is not inevitably how life always will be. We shouldn't look around and, and completely despair. Because the Holy Spirit is powerful. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And reality is real. And so... Even as people go, the Christian sexual ethic is just like repressive and depressing and damaging to women and, and damaging to <coughs> minorities. And they are, they are in the swimming pool holding the floats under the water, whether they will acknowledge it or not. And I, I often think just, it just is worth thinking. As we talk to the self-justifying sinner in a conversation and totally seem to fail to make any dent at all in persuading them of anything Christian. That's okay. I wonder what's going on at three o'clock in the morning. You know, maybe our prayers need to be oriented to some degree around... Three o'clock in the morning is when I do my most kind of lucid thinking, I think, at times, and my most self-reflective and self-challenging thinking. And so we see a lot of stuff on the surface culturally and have no clue what's going on under the surface. But in order for there to be good things going on under the surface, people have to hear what is true and good from us. Praise God for Louise Perry. Praise God for Tom Holland. Isn't it striking that they're unbelievers? You know, I look to, to praise God that there are Roman Catholic bishops who will reliably say sensible things about sexual ethics. Where are the Anglican bishops? You know, I'm not saying, therefore, you free church pastors should feel terribly guilty because you're not on the Today programme talking sensibly about sex. Of course, I understand how these dynamics work, but it is striking. People do still say these things, and so we can too. Um, and I think what it needs is, it needs time and space. Haste, speed, busyness is the enemy of thought and reflection. Um, and so I just want to exhort you with my day job hat on for a moment, pastors particularly, but all of you who work for churches. If you don't have fiercely guarded, defended space in your week, to just sit and stare out of the window and suck a pencil and read a book that's too difficult for you and struggle to understand it. You're doing something wrong in your job. I understand the pressures. I spent 13 years in ordained ministry. You need this time to reflect and to pay loving attention to reality to grow in your understanding of it. Not for this Sunday's sermon, because that's too soon. But for ten years' time. What roots are you putting down now, so that in ten years' time your ministry is deeper and richer and more faithful and more insightful, and not just a little bit tired and running into the buffers? Attention and growing to love it. And that's the battle in our own hearts and souls and minds, isn't it? 
Because I teach about these things and my instincts still rebel against them at times. <laughs> Often. Not just in the area of sexuality, in every area. How can I teach on the Beatitudes and talk about meekness and be the kind of man I am? It's absurd. And so, you know, it's work on ourselves as well. Not just our understanding, not just our teaching, but work on ourselves. Let's pause. Uh, the questions for you to reflect on for a moment. I, I would get you to talk on tables, but I think probably it's time for a bit of Q&A. Um, why do you have a body? Don't look ahead in the handout, because <laughs> I'm going to give you my answer in a minute. Why do you have a body? I think that's a question we have to be able to answer <coughs> and to, to be able to tell our five-year-olds and our eight-year-olds and our 15-year-olds and our 93-year-olds, who all experience their bodies and, and need to understand them in different ways. Why do you have a body? Why do you have sexual organs? We, have to, I mean, we just have to have a crystal clear answer to that question. Why did God give you sexual organs? And why is sex pleasurable? Why did God, give, why did God make it so intensely pleasurable and why did God give I mean young men in particular but everyone such intense sexual desires I remember sitting in the pub when I was a curate with a young man who was a recent graduate um, or, uh, from a university who had come to our church after graduation saying to me with a, a burning intensity that still frightens me and with tears streaming down his face why did God give me these sexual desires and I didn't have an answer. I'd, ra I'd rather be a eunuch. I'd rather be emasculated. I'd rather not have them if I can't... Yeah. And it's just worth reflecting on how would our culture answer those questions? Why do you have a body? Why do you have sexual organs? Why is sex pleasurable? And how you would answer those questions um, if someone sat you down in your study or in a pub or in a coffee shop and asked you the question. But let's, let's pause and uh, take time for questions. Yeah. Thanks so much, Matthew. Um, you touched on it, I think, but I wanted to ask a question about sort of our cultural moment. And um, amidst the chaos and the sewage, um, there seems to be an appetite for guides who tell things as they really are. So mm. you've got, you know, Georgia Maloney in, um, in Italy, John Peterson, Tom Holland, etc. Um, it strikes me that we need there's a need and responsibility for Christians to speak publicly, <laughs> to tell things as they really are, to speak true reality. What, what's the route for evangelical Christians to do that, rather than remaining insular in our parishes? Like, what does it what does it look like for us? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think we have to think about, you know, who who am I? Uh, what are the responsibilities and opportunities God has given me in life? And that's going to be different for different ones of us. And, you know, it, say, let, I'll just talk, forgive me, everyone else, but I'll just talk to ministers for a moment and say, your primary responsibility is the pastoral care of your congregation. It's to pray and preach and catechise. Um, and I want to you know, hammer that one. But, um, and, and to love your families and to love the Lord above all other things and to, you know, all the other things, do the work of an evangelist. 
And so I think we have to say that, um, and those of you who are in different roles with churches, you have to make the necessary adaptations to what I just said. I don't know what the route is. Partly it's, I mean, you know, mugs like me who, actually I've suddenly realised, blimey, I'm in a place where I think I'm, unless I do actually something immoral, or if I stop believing the Bible, I'm, I'm kind of unfireable, I'm uncancellable. And I've got a boss who's actually said to me, if, if you want to write something publicly about this, we've got your back. I was like, thanks, can you not just say don't do it? <laughs> I think, so I think the root is we, we, each of us, have to do the hard work ourselves for our own contexts. The hard work of understanding and then the hard work of courage. And we need to be courageous and gentle. But I worry, actually, at the moment, that out of a desire not to cause unnecessary offence, we are being too gentle and not courageous enough. And so, you know, Jordan Peterson is not afraid to be hated. Love him or loathe him, he doesn't seem to care. And he will just say what he thinks is right. And the reason he does it, I think, is because he genuinely cares about young men in particular. Um, and so I question, do we love people enough actually to be really obnoxious in the world's eyes? Um, do we love people enough to lose our jobs and our houses? <laughs> do we love people enough to lose friends? Do we love people enough to have people, people just say appalling things about us? Those of you who are of a, an age, do you love people enough to have your children hate you for what you believe about this and what you teach about this? It's interesting to read the prefaces to evangelical books that have sort of gone soft on some of these questions and see how often it's... Well, I, you know, I used to believe that the traditional position was right and then my daughter was a lesbian and I went back to the Bible and realised it doesn't really teach what I thought it taught. Oh, that's convenient. Um, you know, I could talk to you about senior Church of England leaders who have sort of fairly ardently LGBT-affirming children and who have changed what they say publicly so they don't really say anything. And I get it, because I have children. So, so I, I, think, I just think we've got to be a lot gutsier. Um, and I don't know about you, but I, I, I want to distance myself from conservative Christians who say things that, in a way that I wouldn't quite say them. I go, yeah, he's a bit of a nutter. I'm not like that. And I think we need to be less ashamed of our brothers and sisters who may not say all the right things in all the right kind of way, but are actually saying things. Um, I, th- I think there is a... I was struck recently in a church. I just looked around and everyone was smiling. And all the music was very happy and poppy and upbeat. And I'm not making a point about worship stars. And the sermon was lovely but cheery. And I'd actually gone to church pretty miserable. And I just thought, this is, maybe it's just me being a miserable old middle-aged cynic with a sore head or whatever. But this feels less like joy and more like nice. I'm just sort of done with nice, really. I want to be kind and gracious and gentle and loving and tender and patient, and, but not nice. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to see us recover a few edges, I think. <laughs> yeah. So that's a really, 
Talk down the clock is my approach to answering questions. <laughs> Thanks, Jake, for letting me do that. Uh, yeah, Guy. Most of us, I mean, if we preach these things and talk these things in our churches, we also will be unsackable uh, because our churches will, will support us. It's when we get out there in the community to yeah. serve as a school governor, take a special interest in safeguarding, and we have a policy on teaching trans issues is that schools shouldn't be teaching children that they're born in the wrong body. We ensure that guidance is complied with in the context of a, of a local school that you know, our son or daughter might attend or that if you're just a member of that community and you want to serve the community in some way. Uh, it's even in some Church of England schools, is that a recent case, wasn't there, yesterday, yeah. Yeah. parents who had to fight against their Church of England school that was put that had been captured by a trans ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we as conservative evangelicals can get in the community to serve in that way, well, we can be doing something positive. Yeah. I think as well, I just... Again, I'm just conscious. I, so I'm, I'm, I'm in this sort of luxurious position. Before that, I was a pastor and I was you know, preaching to the choir, as it were. But the people in our churches aren't. And they will have HR departments in their workplaces. So you read Kathleen, Kathleen Stock has a substack. She's got an, a, an essay on there called The Missionaries in Your Workplace that we should all read. Um, and about how, yeah, just how the, the missionaries in your workplace are not the Christians. The missionaries in your workplace are the LGBT activists. And the HR departments are frightened of them. And the management want a quiet life. But she's brilliant on the dynamics of that and really how it works out. And so again, I think we need to... I don't want to lay burdens on people that I'm not carrying myself. And I do want to think carefully about... What, what is wisdom for someone in that kind of environment, whether they're a teacher or they're in a big company or even in a small company um, or, or a child at school being taught these things or a teenager at university where, you know, communications from the university before my daughter goes all have rainbows over them. And that's not a... At one level, that's just a rainbow, but of course it's not. Um, and so you immediately know what environment you're in and, and, and what you can and can't do and say. Um, and I don't feel I am wise to know what the wise response is in all of these situations. When do you just keep your head down and do your job and pay the bills and sit silently through the diversity training and give your pronouns? And when do you go, enough is enough? You know Václav Havel's Greengrocer? So Harvell has this great um, essay called The Power of the Powerless. Harvell, who was a, a Czech playwright um, under communism, got arrested, treated appallingly, tortured, I think probably, um, or couldn't really get plays put on for a while for being a dissident, and eventually becomes the, the, the first uh, president after the end of communism. But he has this essay where he, he talks about the power of the powerless in a totalitarian society. And the power the powerless have is to live in the truth. And he talks about a greengrocer. He's not a communist. But he gets a sign to put, and with the instruction, you will put this in your window. You know, workers of the world unite. What does he do? Well, of course he puts it in the window. 
And Harville just goes, do you know what that sign says? That sign says, I, X, Y, the greengrocer, am a coward. And I will do what it takes to, to just get on with my life quietly. But of course, if, if, they, he, if he was given a sign saying, I'm a coward, put that in your window, he probably won't. He's got too much self-respect for that. So, but he will put the sign that says, workers of the world unite, to show that he's a good little conformist. Now, I'm an Anglican, so I am a good little conformist. And let me speak to my Anglican brethren for a minute. We are good little conformists. And I think it's a plague in Anglican evangelicalism. And we have been so conformed to particular cultures for so long and thought that we could be Christians in the midst of that and basically could be. Um, but we don't know what to do now we're not allowed to conform anymore. Or now we, yeah, feel uncomfortable conforming. Non-conformists can sort of sit and smug, you know. If the cat fits, wear it. If it fits your Anglican neighbour, enjoy it. You're using the word Anglican to mean Church of England because worldwide Anglicanism isn't like that, is it? No, Western Anglicanism is though. But unless you're in Sydney. Yeah, no, I, I am using it. I, I mean, I'm, I'm meaning specifically Church of England, although I do think, you know, I was part of an outside of the Church of England Anglican body for a while. I don't think we're much different. <laughs> We've just left the Church of England. The same DNA runs through us. Um, yeah. So, no, worldwide Anglicanism is great, and we, we, we should learn from... When you've got the Archbishop of Uganda... Um, or the Archbishop of Nigeria, who have bishops and priests who are being arrested and tortured and killed. And it's just like, no, I will stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, even though we have nothing. That's different, yeah. But I, I don't think most English Anglicans are like that. I wish I, wish I was. I'm not pointing the finger. I wish I was like that. Um, but everything in me screams against it. Sorry, let's, I'm, I'm a bit indulging myself now. Yeah. I've got two questions, if that's okay. Yeah. I hope, they're short. No, that's not big I hope the answers are short. It's not the length of the question that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> when you spoke about the damage that casual sex does, you yeah. said about men being biologically wired to be yeah. excuse or whatever. Um, isn't that a cultural lie that, that we, we all use to justify our... Uh, to justify the damage that we do to women, give an excuse for our poor and immoral behaviour? I like that question. It's great. To a degree, I think it is. To a degree, I think the sexes are... So I, I think God has designed us to be different, uh, and obviously, as, as those who have fallen in Adam, we corrupt that. But I think God has implanted in men a strong sexual drive to, to unite us and keep us united to a woman so that we will be present to do the hard work of providing and being there to raise children in a way that it's different for women who are more oriented to the nurture of children. Mm -hmm. And I recognise I'm speaking to some degree in generalisations, but I think that's basically true. Now, we've corrupted that, and... and but in a, in a healthy fallen society, that male sexual desire is um, directed towards marriage mm -hmm. and early marriage. Yeah. Um, now, what I, what I will say, though, is you know, a man's involvement in procreation is, is pleasurable and short. Um, 
A woman's involvement in procreation is a long-term commitment, just biologically. It's how we're, it's how we're made. Um, and so there is a difference in the male sex drive in part, I think, for that reason. So, so that we don't just, as sinners, <laughs> procreate and move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, th- yeah. yeah. Thank you for thank you for insisting that I finish the point there. And uh, second question is with um, the easy access to contraception. Do you think that it means that we value children less? Yes. Um, and they become a product. I don't have to love them so much. I've chosen them. I've chosen to have them. And I could have chosen not to have them. Um, and, and, and because of all of that is so through the church, how do we bring in, bring back that same value of children, even in couples that use contraception? Which I'm not saying is wrong. Inherently. Okay, let me, let me just carry on. That Oliver O'Donovan quote I cut off, but let me carry on. The idea that sexual differentiation, being male or female is dependent upon human will, choice, necessarily brings it into the sphere of... necessarily brings into the sphere of the voluntary all that follows from it, including the possibility of procreation. If it is a matter of choice that a man and a woman stand opposite one another as a natural man and woman who can still beget children on each other's body, then that act of begetting is itself included in what has been chosen. Thus, the general programme of artificialising procreation is furthered by the artificialization of sex. Now, so he talks about artificialising procreation, and he's talking about there about IVF technologies, I think, primarily in this book. It's, the book is called Begotten or Made. It's an absolute bombshell. And it's one of the tragedies, I think, of um, ethics in, in the last... 40 years. I mean, it's nearly 40 years old and it, no one seems to have paid any heed because it's a prophetic book. He just sees things very clearly. But I think once you, once you have the availability of the contraceptive pill, you have the myth of um, sterile sex. It's not true, but it's, it is more reliable. And particularly, of course, again, what does it do? It makes r- reproduction the responsibility of the woman... And so men can be more careless and carefree than ever before. But also now, for the first time, women can take the risk of, of being sexually active outside of marriage and even sexually promiscuous. In, in a way that it just didn't have... You know, I was talking to someone about I mean, Karl Barth, who, who moved his secretary into his house for decades. It's pretty, it's pretty appalling, but my friend said it probably wasn't that sexual because she never got pregnant. And I said, oh... That's true, isn't it? Of course, it was a different world. Um, it's a question I ask in premarital counselling. I don't ask them to tell me. And maybe if I was bolder or more intrusive kind of person, I would. But I just don't believe in that. But, I, you know, the question is, are you, are you planning? Are you open to children? That's the question. Um, I, know, I know someone who's a an Anglican minister in a different country who, part of premarital counselling is, are you, having, are you planning to have children? And if the answer is no, he will say, then I won't marry you. Different, different if, it's, if it's an older couple, and it's obviously they're not... But, but just like, you need to understand that. <laughs> Young couple marriage is in, in significant part for the sake of procreation. 
And I think we need to recapture that in our imaginations. That's the first step. So what, what the sexual revolution did was it separated sex and procreation, procreation and marriage, and sex and marriage. And those things just belong together. And we've got to find a way in our teaching and our living to bring them back together. And I'm not opposed to all use of contraception. I think the question is not, is this particular sexual act open to procreation? It's, is this relationship as a whole open to receiving the gift of children? Um, and receiving the gift of children rather than making children the object of my choice. That's the key. I think right now for most of us, to some degree or another, children are a matter of choice, which makes children subject to their parents' will. It makes the, their existence no longer a natural gift to be enjoyed. Although, of course, because they, it is that, then that's always the experience. But even the, exist, the children that exist are subject in some sense, their existence is subject to their parents' will. That has imbalanced the relationship of children. And, and I think, by the way, in all these things, we, we can't neatly join up the dots and go, therefore, parental authority has diminished. But I think they're connected. Because we no longer have a healthy, natural relationship of will to our children. We become very diffident about imposing our wills on our children. Because the conscience does really weird things. There's a great essay by Jay Budzieszewski, um, whose name I can't spell. Um, B-U-D-Z-I-E-C-Z-E-W-S-K-I. Jay Budzieszewski. The J is the initial, although it turns out it's also he is called J, but um, called the Furies of Conscience, which is just a brilliant essay of like, when conscience is not convicting you of guilt and sin, here's how it functions to justify you. And I, so I just, you know, at the risk of amateur psychologising, I think if, if our disposition is no longer, we are entering into this covenant relationship open to God's gift of new life and all of the responsibilities that entails, then children become a matter of parental will and choice. Either not to have or to have. And that distorts the relationship of the generations. But you know what? I bet half of you are sitting there, sitting there now going, why is that weirdo banging on about? Because I think we have lost our ability to understand reality. So just to bring it back to what I was saying in the first place, we should probably have a drink or something, shouldn't we? Just before we do... Just before we do stop, um, can I first of all again apologise to those guys who arrived at the right time <laughs> that we had already started. Um, what, what, one of the things that, uh, that, that we did was just to try and get an update on Mike Kane, but I now know that uh, um, a number of folk from Emmanuel are here. And Jim, I just wonder whether you can give us a, an update on Mike. Sure, yes. Uh, so, so Mike is, um, he's, um, he's part of, of Emmanuel West Reeves. 